Muse. 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 Tell me about Pan, the dear son of Hermes, with his goat's feet and two horns, a lover of merry noise. Through wooded glades he wanders with dancing nymphs who foot it on some sheer cliff's edge, calling upon Pan, the shepherd god, long-haired, unkempt. He has every snowy crest in the mountain peaks and rocky crests for his domain. Hither and thither he goes through the close thickets, now lured by soft streams, and now he presses on amongst towering crags and climbs up the highest peak that overlooks the flocks. Often he courses through the glistening high mountains, and often to the shouldering hills he speeds along slaying wild beasts, this keen-eyed god. Only at evening, as he returns from the chase, he sounds his note, playing sweet and low on his pipes of reed. Not even she could excel him in melody. That bird who flower-laden spring, pouring forth her lament, utters honey-voiced song amid the leaves. At that hour the clear-voiced nymphs are with him and move with nimble feet, singing by some spring of dark water, while Echo wails about the mountaintop, and the god on this side and on that of the choirs, or at times, sidling into the mist, plies it nimbly with his feet. On his back he wears a spotted lynx pelt, and he delights in high-pitched songs in a soft meadow where crocuses and sweet-smelling hyacinths bloom at random in the grass. Homeric Hymn 19 to Pan Translation, Evelyn White This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. <sighs> that intro quote from Greek mythology is in dedication to today's guest, On Stanley, owner of Pyramid Appalachian Magic and Remedy Shop in Waynesboro, Virginia, which is nestled in the Shenandoah River Valley. On is a folk herbalist, shop owner, magical practitioner, tarot reader, and I'm sure many, many other things. Um, and you'll hear about it all in the podcast. Um, if you're ever coming through Waynesboro, Virginia, you have got to stop at On's shop, Pyramid. It is so beautifully decorated. It's filled with esoteric books plenty of herbs, some that on has even grown and dried. It's filled with bones that are harvested from, from local hunters, bones if you want for decorations, if you want for magical practice. There are beautiful um, tarot decks, there are candles, there are charms and little gift shop 
tchotchkes, tchotchkes, I forgot how to say that word, and uh, beautiful, beautiful decorative brooms and and all sorts of and all sorts of uh, very witchy, beautiful decor. You can follow along with On on Instagram at Pyramid Waynesboro and check out On's website, which is pyramidwaynesboroVA.com. Both those links will be in the show notes. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It was one of my favorite conversations I've had in a really long time. Whenever I meet someone who's deeply spiritual or has a, a um, well, I guess that's the best way to say it. Um, I, uh, I guess I kind of unload all of my, my spiritual questions upon them. So hopefully that wasn't too much of a burden for on. And, uh, you know, I think there's something very valuable to learn in anyone who has a rich spiritual life, whether that is, um, devoutly Christian or pagan or anything between. So I thoroughly enjoyed hearing about on's, uh, ritual practice, um, wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. Now, An is uh, a devotee of the Greek god Pan. So for today's intro, I'm going to do a bunch of reading about Pan. I've got a handful of books here and some online sources. Um, I'm just going to read from one to the other without saying where, where these sources are. So I'll just say the sources right now. So there's one called Theo, Theoi, T-H-E-O-I.com. That's got lots of stuff on Greek mythology. I'm going to read from Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. I'm going to read from a great, great book to simplify the Greek myths, which is called Oh My Gods, a, mod- a Modern Retelling of Greek and Roman Myths by Philip Freeman. I love that book. It's written very, very, very simply. And it gets back to some of like the rawness because I feel like over time, mythology, fairy tales, I've said this before, they all become very kid friendly when in reality, they're not at all. Greek mythology is completely filled with savage violence, um, sexuality, uh, rape. I mean, really, really, they brute brutality as is many of the, you know, European folktales, extremely dark. Um, so I really enjoyed Oh My Gods, which I haven't reread in its fullness for like 10 years or whatnot, but it really makes these things simple, but it returns to kind of the adult nature of a lot of um, fairy tales, or sorry, of mythology, Greek mythology. I'm also going to be reading because I personally, um, as you know, I personally am a student of Jungian psychology, Jungian philosophy. Um, I'm going to be reading from a book called Sacred Disobedience, a Jungian analysis of the saga of Pan and the devil. On that note, I came to the conclusion long before ever reading about it that, hey, when I'm looking through the tarot deck and I come across the devil card, which has a goat man with horns I'm like, hmm, that looks familiar. Or in horror films, this theme over and over and over again, it's almost trite, which is the, you know, on the farmstead, it's the spooky goat. It's kind of the, 
the goat that is um, possessed. And it's like, what, what is this? Like, this seems so familiar. And of course, it goes right back to the Greek god Pan. And if you're at all familiar with Pan, or if not, he was a satyr. And the satyrs were a group of these kind of half wild men that were half horse or half goat. They had the, the underside, their, their legs were of a horse or of a goat. They would have tails. And then the top of them is man. And these guys were wild and they would live out in the woods and they were the friend of the nymphs. And they were very, they loved revelry and mischief. And that, that is Pan. So Pan is kind of like the ultimate of the satyrs. Um, it's so interesting that this Greek god, Pan, who is quite mischievous and playful and revelry and um, the wildness of the woods and the orgiastic um, ecstasy, you know, very much I feel Pan would have been my, maybe was my patron unknowingly, my patron God in my early twenties when I was partying hard in New York. It was definitely that pan kind of energy to music, revelry, nymphs. Now, late in the conversation, we talk about um, a potential Celtic counterpart. We couldn't think of the name, but, and obviously when I read all these things, you know this already, if you've listened to podcasts, if it's Native American legends, Greek mythology, Nordic mythology, if I read these things, I'm obviously going to not pronounce names properly because who the hell knows how to say these damn words. But um, there's a Celtic god named Cernunos, and he is also a horned god, but perhaps more associated with deer. So Cernunos, the horned one in Celtic religion, an archaic and powerful deity widely worshiped as the Lord of wild things. Cernunos may have a variety of names in different parts of the Celtic world, but his attributes are generally consistent. He wore stag antlers and was sometimes accompanied by a stag and by a sacred ram-horned serpent that was also a deity in its own right. He wore and sometimes also held a torque, the sacred neck ornament of Celtic gods and heroes. So that I was reading from Britannica.com. But if you Google Cernunos, C-E-R-N-U-N-N-O-S, really fascinating um, ancient art with this character who's got these, uh, these, this head of antlers. And I've read that it's not for sure whether Sununos was a god, but there's also the potential that he was a shaman, that this was a depiction of someone in a shamanic um, costume in some form of wild ritual. So it's so fascinating how these kind of archetypal characters, um, you know, this half man, half animal, how these things transform through time and transform from one religion to the other. And what does the next religion do or a counterpart one across the world? Just absolutely fascinating. So you have Cernunos among the Celtic, we have Pan among the Greece and the Greek. And as Christianity came to be, and as you'll hear when I read the Jungian analysis, there's a transformation of Pan. Um, before we get into the reading and this fantastic conversation with An, I wanted to say a huge thank you to the handful of folks who have joined as Patreon patrons. 
And I'm going to go ahead and shout out to all of them for today. There's Megan, no last name. Diana Jablonski. Cedar Hill Homestead, that's our friend Victoria. Michelle Alderson. Tyler Lively, who I think just bought a ramp t-shirt. And Jess Paget. Uh, hopefully I pronounce all his names all right. Paget, Jess Paget. So I just thank you so much. And if anyone listening would like to join on for on Patreon, it's uh, patreon.com forward slash our newness nature. The links are in the, my Instagram and whatnot. Um, thank you so much. This money is directly going to go towards just keeping the podcast going. And I don't, I've learned you cannot count your eggs before they hatch. And I once read on the podcast, there's a counterpart French fable where a bear hunter sells the bear pelt before he hunts the bear. So I learned stop doing that. So I no longer, I've decided I will no longer talk about future podcasts because then they don't happen. Something weird happens. But I am hoping that immediately the next podcast going forward, I'm going to go on a little mini trip and go and talk to a handful of really fascinating people. So that's where this money is going to go to directly paying gas, camping out, talking to some amazing folks. I'm very excited to bring to you. Also, thank you to people who've written some of the kindest messages on, um, on Apple podcasts, leaving a review or leaving stars. Um, some of these are just really kind. Maybe I'll read them on another, um, another, uh, episode. Um, what has surprised me was I thought, um, if I succeeded in what I was trying to do with this podcast, that, um, I felt if there was a positive response, it would be about being able to see into the exotic or almost a bit of voyeurism seeing into someone else's life. Like, um, Oh, I've never, I didn't know anything about watermen on the Chesapeake Bay to, to see into their life. Oh, that's fascinating. That's actually not what I'm getting back from feedback. What seems to be happening is people who have actually experienced these lifestyles or these regions are reaching out to say that this reminds them of where they grew up. This reminds them of working in the Chesapeake Bay on a boat. So it's so I'm really finding that fascinating and I'm really thankful that that's what's happening kind of on its own with this podcast. All right, enough of all that. Let's get in to the myths and analysis of the horned god Pan. In Arcadia, he was the god of forests, pastures, flocks, and shepherds, and dwelt in grottoes, wandered on the summits of mountains and rocks and in valleys, either amusing himself with the chase or leading the dances of the nymphs. As the god of flocks, both of wild and tame animals, it was his province to increase them and guard them. But he was also a hunter, and hunters owed their success to him, who at the same time might prevent their being successful. In Arcadia, hunters used to scourge the statue if they hunted in vain. During the heat of midday, he used to slumber and was very indignant when anyone disturbed him. As god of flocks, bees also were under his protection, as well as the coast where fishermen carried on their pursuit. 
As the god of everything connected with pastoral life, he was fond of music and the inventor of the syrinx, or shepherd's flute, which he himself played in a masterly manner. Pan, like other gods who dwelt in the forests, was dreaded by travelers to whom he sometimes appeared, and whom he startled with a sudden awe or terror. Fir trees were sacred to him, as the nymph Pities, whom he loved, had been metamorphosed into that tree, and the sacrifices offered to him consisted of cows, rams, lambs, milk, and honey. Once Hermes fell in love with a nymph Dryope, and soon she became pregnant. When it was time for her to give birth, all her companions gathered around her in the women's quarters of her palace to help in the delivery. They were not prepared, however, for the newborn babe they saw. The laughing child had the feet of a goat and two horns, along with a full beard. The nurse who received him into the world screamed and ran away in fright, but his proud father Hermes was there in an instant to take the boy in his arms. He carried him up onto the halls of Mount Olympus, where he presented him to the other gods, much to their delight. They named him Pan, Greek for all, because he brought joy to everyone. True to his ghoulish nature, Pan grew up with an insatiable appetite for sex. One day, when wandering through the forests of Arcadia, he saw the nymph Syrinx, a devotee of the virgin goddess Artemis. She was used to being chased by lustful satyrs, but Pan was faster and far more persistent. Nonetheless, she ran as fast as she could until she came to a river she could not cross. With Pan closing in, she prayed to the nymphs of the stream to transform her. The eager god then grabbed her from behind, but all he found in his hands were water reeds, the remains of poor Syrinx. Disappointed but intrigued, Pan took some of the reeds and cut them to different lengths, then sealed them with wax to make a musical instrument he named for the girl he had almost caught. The instrument is also known as the pan pipe. The Arcadian god Pan is the best-known classical example of this dangerous presence dwelling just beyond the protected zone of the village boundary. He was the inventor of the shepherd's pipe, which he played for the dances of the nymphs, and the satyrs were his male companions. The emotion that he instilled in human beings who by accident adventured into his domain was panic, fear, a sudden, groundless fright. Any trifling cause then, the break of a twig, the flutter of a leaf, would flood the mind with imagined danger, and in the frantic effort to escape from his own aroused unconscious, the victim expired in a flight of dread. Yet Pan was benign to those who paid him worship, yielding the boons of the divine hygiene of nature, bounty to the farmers, herders, and fisherfolk who dedicated their first fruits to him, and health to all who properly approached his shrines of healing. In Jungian terms, Pan's transformation into the devil might be said to involve the archetype of the goat god and its vicissitudes in the consciousness of Western civilization. A Jungian formulation of the issue might be stated in this way, that Pan the goat, once representation of the larger category of the horned god in the classical Mediterranean culture that parented early Christianity, has been made to carry the projection of heavily inflated and negatively charged psychic contexts which shadow Western consciousness through history. 
The god Pan, imaged as the monstrous force of evil, represents a profound distortion of the hairy goat god, possibly due to some underlying repression in Western consciousness. The repressed, projected elements, which have in effect created a quote-unquote devil, need to be opened up. Pan needs to be relieved of the distortion he has been forced to carry, his positive qualities recognized and eventually incorporated back into consciousness if the goal of wholeness, Jung's guiding principle, is to be achieved. Pan becomes transformed into the goatish devil as part of a larger cultural paradigm shift occurring as a consequence of emergent new religious movements in late antiquity. A process of assimilation of older forms, including in some cases a demonization of older religious models by the new religion ensues, all too common an occurrence in religious history. The mythic gods of the ancestral tradition are effectively transmuted as parts of them become incorporated into new religious forms, and other parts are degraded into demonic elements to be utterly shunned in the new order. In the Jungian perspective, much of this process is occurring at an unconscious level. As the old gods are vilified, the old Pan dies, and the emergent figure which bears his identifying marks appears twisted and demonic. Where Pan was playful and wistful, the devil is now a seething mass of malevolence. Mm -hmm. A kind of inflation has occurred, an increase in power, and a rendering wholly evil. This is, in the Jungian language, indicative of the unconscious fallout effect of killing off the old gods. In the case of a primitive animal god like Pan, the positive shadow elements he represented distort into a potent, inflated, negativized shadow figure pulsating with malevolence. The psychological equivalent for the killing off of the ancestral gods is the term repression. In the Jungian system, repressed psychic contents do not disappear as proponents of the new order tactically assume, but distort and grow more powerful or inflate to cripple the psyche that refuses to incorporate these split-off elements. Repressed contents will expand like the contents of the pressure cooker allowed no outlet and build to explosive force as the repressed elements eventually return regressively from below. When Pan was demonized then, the powerful qualities he represented became repressed in the new configuration, as Pan's visage twisted into the model of the devil. It becomes important then to understand what qualities the primitive goat god carried to appreciate what was repressed in the Western psycho-spiritual system, and what subsequently needs reintegration. Attending to the vicissitudes of the pan trajectory in Western histories can help us understand important aspects of the condition of the collective psyche in Western history. So we're in Pyramid of Waynesboro, Virginia, um, occupied Monacan territory. Uh, we're basically about 10 minutes from the entrance, or we'll say the southeast entrance to the Shenandoah Valley. Okay, is that the Shenandoah right there? Up that way. Okay. Um, I don't know which way, which direction you came in. You probably came in through the back way, which is a lot prettier in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 64 is right up there, like closer to Afton. So um, 
at the risk of um, maybe offending some of my friends and acquaintances, because I know a lot of people who are herbalists and have apothecaries, your shop is one of the most beautiful that I've ever been in. And I was telling you, it my, the other one that's my favorite is Flower Power up in Manhattan. So your shop here is absolutely incredible. We're right now we are surrounded by jars of herbs. Um, you have a super amazing aesthetic that's kind of a little bit more on the a little bit on the darker side, which is my. I was gonna say, you know, while I may dress in plaid and um, with suspenders, uh, my soul is gothic for sure. Yeah. So we've got skulls over here on this table. Um, describe your store a little bit. Yeah, so we've actually kind of made a shift since opening. So we were talking before about, you know, what we're presenting to our community and how to better do that. So when we first opened, I had to present myself a certain way to be palatable. And then after a year of doing it, I found myself more drawn, <clears throat> more drawn to what you're seeing now. So <clears throat> it's basically... We are a combination of a metaphysical shop meets a country store. Um, out here, the two kind of go hand in hand. And, you know, we have a very diverse range of people who shop. We have Christians, we have pagans, we have atheists, but we like to provide a little something for everyone regardless. That is incredible. A metaphysical country shop. That's exactly what this is. Well, some of the, so um, other than, you being a fascinating person doing very cool stuff. Uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to have this conversation was because you're interested in like the magic of Appalachia. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, obviously looking up through some of your old posts, trying to find things to talk about, you, you're from the Chesapeake Bay area? More or less, yeah. So uh, family, my dad's side is from Eastern Tennessee, Everything's been dispersed since then, um, and I grew up in like Hampton Roads, Virginia. Okay, um, always drawn back to the valley, whether it be for camping or day trips. But I've always wanted to come back. Was until I turned thirty that I learned why. You were pulled to the mountains. Yeah, back, back to the mountains. Exactly. Wow. Well, um, I guess before we get into that, a question that's like I have to ask that you probably hear all the time is how is this store doing here? Like to me seeing this, it would be like, well, this would be an absolute killing, like in Richmond. I went to college in Richmond for a okay. year. Or like living in Brooklyn. This would be, you would be do it, making a killing, like doing this there. How is this here in this country town of Virginia? Um, well, when we first opened up, I was ready for a brick to be coming through my window or picketers out front. Um, what I soon learned about Waynesboro specifically is just how introverted everyone out here is. And we like to mind our business. So it's doing really well in the sense that lots of people come in who are curious and it's something that they didn't anticipate it being. Um, and then for the most part, if people don't like what they're, if they don't like what they see, they don't come back. Um, but we've done nothing but grow. Like we've filled up the good majority of the store when I first opened all these shelves you see maybe a third full mm -hmm. at most. Um, but, you know, like I said before, I feel like when you start diversifying and encompassing your community and not just a niche part of it, there's something for everyone. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that I, I do feel because we've moved to a very traditional area, um, very tight-knit community, 
Um, I do wonder how does an outsider like me who has interests that are perhaps different than the people in my area, how do, how do you be a member of the community while still being yourself? We were talking about a little bit about that before. Um, um, but I do feel that in the mountains, you know, and I, uh, there are things I don't want to talk about on the podcast, like politics. Don't give a sure, shit to talk yeah. about that. I don't even really care about that at all. But like the don't tread on me is like that flag is like a spirit of don't tell me what to do. You do what you want to do. I'm going to do what I would want to do. And everyone's cool. Like you live in your back holler and you can do whatever you want back there. But we're going to also do whatever we want in our little heart. (laughs) It's exactly that. And it is a shame that there's a lot of like stigma behind that uh, symbol. Yes. Um, But I feel like the heart of it is still very much alive, at least in the valley. And it's Mm. just, just leave me the fuck alone and I'll leave you alone. And that's it. Mm. So what brought you to the mountains? I wanted to be left alone. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And then, um, so what have you learned about like the magic of, you know, the folk magic, the practices, anything like that? What have you learned from people being out here? Oh, the simplicity of it. Um, I've, I've practiced just about everything spiritually, trying to find answers, um, with myself or the universe or whatever. Um, and I feel like I've come full circle and just gotten back to basics. And I think what I've learned uh, about practicing Appalachian-specific folk magic, um, one, it's not what people think. One, you would never call it magic. It's just what you do. Mm. Um, it's everyday mundane activities. And it's not, it's not what you do. It's how you do it. Mm. It's mindfulness. Okay. Do you have an example of like... Could you paint a little picture of what yeah. that might be? Um, so for me, um, usually every Monday, today being the exception, um, I will go through and I will clean the house. But it's not just cleaning the house. Like I break out the broom. I do it a certain way. Um, sweeping is a big part of like home cleanses out here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, most people like burn some herbs. Everyone's like, oh, burn some sage to cleanse, cleanse your house. I'm here for that. Um, but out here it's, clean your house, but Mm. do it mindfully. You can say a prayer, you can say a mantra, you can light candles, but everything is done in such a way that you're not just sweeping the dirt and filth out of your home, you're sweeping out like anything else that might be lingering in the corners. Mm. I love that. I really love that. Yes, I see what you're saying. It's more of a practical magic. Precisely, yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah, I just met, there's a, so where we moved, there are a handful of these like old time traditional days, like a fair. Yeah. And so they just had a small one for school kids that we went to on Friday, literally at the end of our road, like two minutes down the road. And they had a woman who's in West Virginia who does traditional Appalachian brooms who actually, oh, you've got some right there, but you might be interested in carrying her brooms. I'll show you later. But, um, she was talking about how the broom that was more associated with Appalachian witchery is with thicker, instead of the thin little, um, I don't know what you'd call them, straw or whatever. Yeah. It would, it's with thick, they, they would use birch, like Yeah, sticks. use the reeds. and. Do you know why that is? No, please, please, please. Um, well, one, it's accessibility. 
Um, it's mm. what you, it's what they have. It's what's available. Um, but also, like especially with like front porches and outside, like you've used a regular broom, nylon, probably like one of the straw ones. They don't really get everything. With thicker bristled brooms, you can pick up like leaves, rocks. You c- it's big debris that you really need out. Mm. Um, so they're just more practical. They last longer. They might scratch up an indoor floor, mm. um, but they're really good for back then when it didn't really matter. You just needed the dirt off the floor. Mm. Now, have you studied with or befriended like real old timers here? Yeah, there's one in particular. Um, her, we'll just call her uh, Amethyst. Um, but she's had a shop here. Mm. She's still in the area. I consider her my elder. Mm. Um, and a lot of people in our private community refer to her as our elder. She's since retired and just enjoying her quiet life. She's about 15, 20 minutes away. Um, so people will come and check in on her. Like I'm out there just about every winter, like shoveling her sidewalk so she can get in and out. Um, but even her... I don't do everything the way she does. Mm. Um, everyone does something a little different out here, mm. but she's definitely been my, we'll call her my liaison. Mm. Is there anything that you, well, we should talk about your background with your interest in magic, the occult, mm-hmm. spirituality. We should probably talk about that sorts of things, but has there been anything in the folk magic side, this is a kind of more practical side that has surprised you um, maybe at its simplicity, not even knowing. So for instance, Vivian, my girlfriend, just mm-hmm. went to a barn quilt workshop. I saw right? that. Yeah. yeah. So the barn quilts, I don't we don't know enough about that yet. Um, but definitely up in Pennsylvania, their version is the barn hex, the hex yeah. And that is for sure folk magic. Yes, definitely. Um, well, they're it, ironically, they're they're used for protection from witches. There you go. So, so I wouldn't have known that. Like being a kid going up to Pennsylvania, you're seeing this and you have no idea like, oh my God, this is like living folk magic here in the landscape. Is there anything that has, even though you've been so versed in this type of thing, is there anything that you has surprised you? Like, oh, like I wouldn't have realized that right here in front of me is a magical practice. Um, <laughs> if anything is, it, it's, it's the mundane. So mm. with it's when you go down a dirt road and you see like bones and things hanging from the woods, like you're like, oh, what's going on? Like you kind of like want to go to like that sack bagans mentality and like, oh, it must be Satanists. Um, but really it's just people who have an affinity for the macabre. And when you hang stuff from the trees that are creepy, guess what? People tend to leave you alone. I love it. Not everything we do that. Not everything has to mean something. We hang we hang bones from strings just like at the front of your window here. So it's it, and I don't even know why we're doing that other than we think it looks beautiful. Yeah, um, it's practical. It has the effect that it needs, and you know there are witches' ladders and stuff that are made for purpose. What is that? A witch's ladder. I know so little about this kind of thing. So please, like, elaborate as much oh, as you want about it's stuff. a series of. Items and knots. So sometimes it's bones, sometimes it's nails. It could be, it really just depends on the practitioner. Um, but charms and wards are what you're getting into. So charms are to like usher in something and mm. wards are for keeping things out. Um, that's the general premise of it. And they could be used either way? Depends. 
So it's kind of like a mobile. Exactly. Interesting. I find myself doing all of these things, not knowing why I'm doing them. Like I've just been like, hey, I should make a mobile of bones, but I'm not conscious. So it sounds like you just belong here then. <laughs> so, so I'm very much into Carl Jung and, and yeah. Jungian ideas. For the past like nine years, I've been going to a Jungian, well, we do it on Skype now, but a Jungian analyst. And I'm part of a men's group and we're all kind of, it's really, the Jung is definitely like the background to like archetypes, like a lot of the themes that he came oh, up absolutely. with. So I've been one of the theme, just to go a little into it. Um, you know, so Jung would believed that um, all of us have many different people inside of us, different versions of ourselves, different archetypes inside yeah. ourselves. So one of them, like we've talked about before, I'm sure you know about this already, but like the shadow, we've talked about it. A sh someone's shadow would be someone's dark side. Um, someone's persona is how you um, portray yourself out in the mm -hmm. world. If you're a doctor, you probably go around and everyone knows you as the doctor, but you're much more than just a doctor. Right. And people can be trapped in a persona. We see that with celebrities. Who is the real person? Are you allowed to be more than your persona, et cetera? But one of those aspects is the anima, which is um, just in traditional way of talking about it. It is um, that in the man is a woman. And this is the anima is a man's connection to um, creativity, to spirituality, to divination, to um, re re interrelational relationships yeah. with people. And through exploring the anima for me was definitely like where things were getting real witchy. And so I know that I don't know past life or what, but there's, I am definitely drawn to these things. Um, but you know, I'm not practicing like, so I'm so intrigued by people right. like you who have this rich spiritual life. Um, I don't know. And I, I don't know what that could, ha what you, I, I guess I kind of feel the same way about what you're doing in reverse. Like, I think people have this misconception that I like, eat shit and breathe magic and spirituality mm. when, you know, I, some days I do Tuesdays mm. in Bangkok. No, but, um, <laughs> um, I feel like a lot of us are just trying to survive and trying mm. to figure it out in the process. Um, and we all have our different way of doing it, but mm. it is strange going back to what you were saying. Um, cause I found myself doing the same thing and then going out to different haulers and like out mm. to like West Augusta and seeing people doing the exact same thing I've been doing, not knowing why and just being like, okay, well, we all belong here, so. Do you have an example? Like what? Do you mean like the bone, the bone charms? Yeah, yeah. So I wonder, because you were also correlating it with this idea of um, stay, also a bit of like no trespassing, stay away. Yeah. I wonder if that goes back to our ancient, like our ancient ancestors putting up like a stake with a head on it. It very well could be. <laughs> I mean, it's what it's in now it's, you know, mostly like security cameras and right. it's the need to protect our family and our community. Right. Right. Um, some people just have bones and some people can get cameras. Like, <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about your interests in these topics. Has, was this something that you felt all the way from being a little kid? Like a pull uh, towards these? Uh, yes. Uh, so I've been <laughs> mixing, you know, making mud potions since I was a kid. Um, but then when I hit 16, I started becoming interesting more or less and finding more about who I was. 
um, start looking into like, you know, very easy stuff you can find at the bookstore, like books on Wicca, just, you know, I actually got really heavy into Buddhism for a while and that's kind of full circle for me. Um, it really wasn't until, um, you've talked about depression on some of your podcasts. Mm. Um, so I went through mine and when I was 19, you know, I went, I had a suicide attempt and I woke up in the hospital bed and I was like, well, that was stupid. So I started getting more into my spiritual self and really just trying to find something that spoke to me, not even able to find anything in words that described what needed to like fill that cup. Um, and that's when I found folk magic and it kind of ties into my practices with Buddhism. It's, it's mindfulness. It's, it's that silence, like we were saying before, when you're sitting by yourself and you have no distractions and you enter this different state of mind, um, it's the sitting in silence and doing those things in silence and meditating on it and doing everything with purpose and intent. Um, it's, it's just calming. It, it fills that cup for me. So I have never, I've, I'm, and we don't need to talk about this if you don't, if you don't want to, so just tell I'm an me. Open book. Okay. So, um, you know, I personally have never, I've contemplated suicide, but have never like, Thank God, I've never been pulled towards that. But some people extremely close to me have been dealing with this for decades. Yeah. Um, from my, just from reading, you know, from reading Jung, and tell me if you feel that this is accurate or not. Um, Carl Jung's idea of suicide is that a part of us needs to die. Yet often the person thinks all of them has to die. So, if one can say, I need to shed this huge chunk of whatever my name is needs to dis needs to be killed off so that something new can be reborn. Do you feel that that's accurate? For me personally, absolutely. Um, when I did wake up, a part of me did die. And I won't give too much detail with that, but I, I wouldn't say I became a completely different person. I just embraced the better portions of my entirety. Um, but there was more or less, I call it like, it was a sacrifice. And mm. I'm really, I wish it wouldn't happen that way. And I'm not advocating like, hey, like you should totally do this for ego <laughs> death. Horrible decision. Um, there's so many other options for mental health and well-being. Um, but for me personally, it was the death of what I thought I was and the birth of a different sort of ego. Mm. If that answers your because question. Because you survived, it's almost a ritual, like a self-inflicted ritual. It wasn't intended to be, but I guess it was. Like, I haven't talked about it in a while, but more or less, yeah. Um, it was a, yeah, it was a form of sacrifice for me. And I'm very happy I woke up from it, but I was not the same person I was afterwards. Do you feel that you got a new understanding of what life is by getting so close to the end of it? I'm not, I wouldn't credit the, my suicide attempt for my spiritual awakening. Hmm. Um, 
I would give most of that credit to Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese uh, Buddhist. He recently passed away. Um, but he was my teacher all through my late teens, early 20s afterwards, and completely shifted how I view life and how I view my own liminality and my own, you know, for lack of better words, numinous nature while I'm here. Mm. Um, so I would prefer to credit his teachings over what I did when I was 19. Was this in the flesh or was this through reading? Is this someone? This was through reading and then okay. through um, like, so he would, especially during like the, uh, oh, what's that thing we just went through? COVID? Yeah, that's it. Mm. Um, you know, do different like seminars online and stuff. But his books are accessible just about anywhere where they have a quote unquote metaphysical section. Um, and I always turn people who are struggling with themselves or depression to start with him. Are you able to articulate some of those teachings that were extremely meaningful to you? The resounding, well, I would recommend, could I make a book recommendation for anyone for sure. struggling? Um, it's mindfulness practices, but um, Taming the Tiger Within really helped me to cope with my anger issues uh, that I projected at other people that I was actually projecting onto myself um, as well. So Taming the Tiger Within really helped me to identify my sources of anger and not neutral, not extinguish them, but neutralize them and see them for what they are. You mm. know, same with like Jungian theory, like you don't just get rid of your shadow self. No way. You embrace it and you give it that space. And a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings are the same thing. Like you're allowed to feel things other than joy, other than excitement. You can feel the mundane and you can feel upset. And it helps if you just embrace it like a child. Now I think I am kind of like, I found the quote. Well, it's not an actual quote, but you know, when you find those feelings about yourself, your shadow self, and it's angry or it's depressed, like, you know, you embrace it like a small child, you nurture it. It's, you wouldn't leave a screaming baby in its room to cry and scream, right? Mm. You go into the room and you hold it and you embrace it and you find out what's wrong with it and you nurture it. And that's how I have learned to treat that shadow self is give it space and time to breathe so I can figure out, all right, what is it? that you need? What is it that I need? Amazing. And this is definitely some themes that I talk about a lot in my, in my group. And for instance, a lot that parts of ourselves that are left behind will stay immature. Yeah. So when you see people who are like 50 and they're acting like something happens and they're triggered, I hate that word. I hate how like <laughs> pop culture that word is. I but know. when they start acting like out, like in a way that you're like, what, what is going on? Like, how did this happen? That may, that, you know, some part of them might still be five. Yeah. So they're having a temper tantrum and that part, and you get like exactly what you're saying. You got to go back in there in that kid's room and say, Hey, little guy. It, yeah. Like, and then let that, and then they can grow and mature up to your, where you're at the same age. I call that, um, a lot of times I'll call it like, you know, meeting people where they're at, but mm. I call that having grace. Like, mm. have grace for yourself, have grace for others. Like, you can spend five minutes just trying to understand why someone is acting a damn fool. Mm. Um, but within that five minutes, you might come up with something that fits. And even if it's not accurate, 
you've now just allowed a little bit of grace for someone else. And you'll probably be a little more graceful in your dealings with them. Mm. Mm. Well, let's see. Where should we go from there? Wow. Um, I mean, I like what you're starting to talk about with the shadow as well. Yeah, I mean, I've studied Jungian philosophy as well. I think I told you that. Um, no, you didn't. But I've seen you want in one of you know I went through all your posts just so I have stuff okay. to talk about. But so I did read you talk about the shadow. So yeah. I knew that you were at least. Have you read the Kabbalion? No. It's a it's a very Westernized. It's an Americanized version of an older text, but definitely worth a read, especially with Jungian philosophy. And then also, did you know uh, tarot? Mm. is very Jungian in the archetypes. Yes. So, so tarot has been my first and foremost mode of, like, I wouldn't call it mediumship, it's just what I do. So I want to hear about that. Okay. So in my early 20s in college film school, I felt just in, in I have felt guided by intense magnetic pulls to things. Often things I'm scared of, like trapping. Like I thought I could never trap an animal, but I feel this insane pull and I follow those. One of those back in college was tarot. Out of nowhere, I was like, you have to get into the tarot. Just, and I just like the imagery. Yeah. And I still struggle with like getting in touch with my intuition. Um, but years later when I got into Jung, exactly what you're saying, I realized like that first arcana, is that how you say it? The major arcana. The major yeah. arcana is the Jungian process. 100%. It starts with fool, which is if you enter anything new, whether it's this beautiful shop, whether it's me trying to be an illustrator, whether it's learning something new, you start as a fool. And by the end of it, you've reached the world, which is wholeness, which in the Jungian perspective is individuation, which is fullness. Yeah. Let's hear about what the tarot has been for you. So for me and just like everything, I'm speaking from my experiences and how I do my readings. I treat tarot, it is a form of divination, absolutely. Like you, you find out things that you didn't know, you find out things that you will know, you know, past, present, future, all that. But I think there's a reason behind it. And I think it's because the major arcana does represent the human archetype. And mm. it's every aspect that somebody has, is, or will experience. Mm. It can be a form of therapy for for a lot of my readers that it actually is. Um, my clients will get readings from me. I will always advocate for like any form of therapy that someone's comfortable with. Um, with my tarot readings, however, like we there is a form of divination in it as well because you know everyone wants to know. Oh. Can you define what divination means? Does that mean? To see the future? What exactly does divination mean Divination to you? doesn't have to mean just future. Some people will divine from the past. Some people can divine what's happening in someone's life right now. That's what I'm very good at, actually. Um, and then, you know, some people believe in, if you believe in past lives, some people can divine from that. Some people, like Reiki, is also a form of divination because mm. it takes some form of intuition, intuition to figure out what's going on with that person's, like, body or alignments. Um, so divination is just the ability to extrapolate information with very little input to no input at all. What do you think about this? So I guess if it's a form of divination, I guess 
tarot is just one way of doing something that you could do in many ways. Because I thought once I realized that the major arcana was um, this process of individuation, this process of the different types, the, the when I realized that it encompassed all of humanity, basically all of what it is to be the human soul, yeah. that I thought, hey, could you do this? Could you walk into a museum and do this? Like, it's, you know, if you were to walk through the medieval section of a museum where you see Hieronymus Bosch's depictions of hell and then you see angels, could you divine by, I don't know. I don't even really know what the hell I'm talking about <laughs> other than could, it, by leading someone, like, could you, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. But, um, okay, the tarot. Tarot isn't the only form of divination, mm. though, obviously. Like, you've heard of tea leaf readings. There are runes, which is just one of many forms of uh, astragalomancy. And that's like dice, bones, buttons, runes, sticks, rocks. Astragalomancy encompasses things like, you know, what Casting. most people... Exactly. And then how do you interpret the information? Intuitively? Training? Do you need a... A master to train you? Oh, you could divide a room on that subject. Hmm. There are some people who believe that it's a natural born gift, and a lot of people will pull that clout. Um, I really don't know, and I'm okay with that. Like, I haven't had formal teaching, but through 20 plus years of experience and aligning myself with people who are better than me, Mm -hmm. you know, not, you know what I mean. Of course. it, it sounds trite to say, but the true masters never proclaim themselves as ma- themselves mm. as masterful. Like they're always a student. So for me, it's been half intuition and half immersion, but that could be different. Like I've seen kids who are like six or seven, like say some crazy ass shit mm. and they get like they're it's I'm getting chills thinking about it, but some people are just born with a gift. Some people might not be, but I think if you just, it's a muscle. Mm. You work the muscle enough. You practice enough. Like, What have you heard kids say? Oh, um, well, I used to do home cleanses. I still do. It's just been a while because of COVID, but mm. it's the things that they see, mm. um, recollection of uh, previous like, like deceased grandparents that they never got to meet but are describing to a T at a young age. Um, A couple of them have been like, have like prophetic dreams. And sometimes kids just say creepy things. Mm -hmm. Like I have a friend who just told me that her son had a dream where he was like stabbing his mom to death. And I'm like, Jesus. Keep that to yourself, little guy. You're like four. (laughs) Um, So sometimes kids just say crazy shit. Um, but sometimes the things are more poignant. And most of what I experience is when a child sees something in their home and will get clients who come in and they're like, do I need this gone? What do I do? Do I need to work with it? Like, even if it's just in the child's mind, like they, they, no one wants their child, their child to be scared or seeing these things. Did you have this kind of an intuition as a child? I have been told I did. Um, but you don't remember it? 
I don't remember a lot, but wow. I remember one of my aunts, she's uh, in Texas now. Like she told me when I was a little older, she was like, you, so they're very, they're like from, they're in Texas. Mm-hmm. So she was like, you know, we always knew you were artistic. Like you, you always just paid attention to details that nobody else could see or notice. And um, I kind of took that one way because that's about the time I came out to my family. Mm. Um, and then she kind of clarified. She's like, no, you just see things. I'm like, okay, I don't remember any of that, mm. but I'll take your word for it. Mm. Well, hey, maybe past life too. Who knows? Who knows? What do you think about past life? I honestly... It, does that not tie into the Buddhism? Is there not the belief in... That depends on what okay. subject of Buddhism okay. or, you know, what practice. Um, I honestly, I've learned that, I've learned recently that just because I believe something doesn't mean I have to voice my opinion on it. And for the p- subject of past lives, mm. I've done readings Um it's not something I can really comment on because I just don't know. And mm-hmm. I don't want to speak with any fortitude or knowledge of something that I don't think many people, I don't think we're meant to understand everything. No, definitely but, not. But do you have any feelings about it for yourself? Oh, for myself? Yeah, I'm not asking you to say that there's such thing as it. Who the hell knows? But do you have any inklings? Do you have any like strange notions ab- about yourself in past lives? Not particularly, to be completely honest. Mm. Um, I had a, yeah, there was a dream that I had that was probably the most frightening, it was the most frightening dream I've ever had in my life. And it was so palpable. It's not something I can talk about. Okay. I I can tell you afterwards, but yeah, it's not something I can talk about. So uh, literally... My Jungian analyst that I talk to every week, other than talking about life, he asks every week, have you had any dreams? And we're dissecting dreams. One point of contention between me and him is he likes to see dreams always through the interpretation of archetypal symbolic language that you you kind of slowly not necessarily decipher, but get a feeling for what it might be about. Right. But sometimes I'm like, listen, Curtis, this is a fucking prophecy. And I'm like, and he's, <laughs> he's like, yes, yes, yes. You might think that, but you know, these are archetypal. I'm like, no, normally, yes. But this is one of three dreams that I've had that is real. Yeah. And I'm like, you're not, and I get so mad. And I feel like he is, um, and we talk about this, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me sharing all this, but um, I'm like, this is like, and I feel hurt that my intuition is not, and I've told him this, that my intuition is not being listened to. I'm like, this is real. Again, I can't really talk about it publicly, but we had an issue where we uh, felt um, in danger in real life by somebody around us. Okay. And I had a dream that said, there's something dangerous that's gonna happen if you don't get out of it. And when I talked to another person, they had just been contacted by like their shaman who out of the blue, who they don't call them up to say, hey, are you okay? And I was like, and then I was having in real life, like paranormal levels of like crying and energy being like, uh, there's something dangerous coming, you need to get out of here. 
So sometimes I think the dreams, I think they're just different types of dreams. I 100% agree. And those prophetic dreams, like, it, it, prophecy is funny because to believe in prophecy, you have to believe that time is linear, which mm. inherently it is not. Mm. So it's circular and it, it's four-dimensional and it moves mm. differently. Um, so to say, and I, I'm not disagreeing with you at mm-hmm. all, but to say like a prophetic dream, like you could just be reliving. I mean, I guess we're tying back into past lives right now, mm. aren't we? Um, but to say you're having a prophetic dream, maybe it is the future, but what is that? Like is, is maybe it's just something you've already lived out before. Yes. Um, and, so, and isn't there always the kind of wisdom that, that fate is not locked in, right? Like, isn't it always like, okay, that's one direction unless you go another course right now. Like, isn't that even in the tarot or not? Like, aren't you, when you're divining, aren't you kind of saying you're going in this trajectory and so now you're going to be conscious of it? Precisely. Make a decision. Um, I always, that's a great point to bring up, especially with like, like you know, again, in quote, always in quotations, like future readings. It's like, this does not, this is not damning. This is not fate. This mm. is all based on the actions that you've been taking. Like you can shift all of this and <laughs> I'm about to quote Bray, like change your fate. But yeah, you can. You just have to stop doing what it is you're doing and go. Is that I mean, from Braveheart? Is that what you're gonna say? Brave. No, that the Disney movie Brave, Brave when oh, she's okay. like, change your fate. I haven't seen that one. It's it's cute. It's <laughs> you might like it. It's all yeah, it's it's fun, wholesome. It's Disney. What do you expect? Um, but I don't think we are locked in. We're certainly not, not locked into time if you really want to get into it that way. But, um, back to the point of like dreams being your subconscious as a way of like fixing the things that you're not fixing in Mm -hmm. your waking life versus a prophetic dream. You know, most people know the difference. Um, it's just a matter of who are you, who do you tell? Like, do you tell your friend who is very, I have a friend just like it, just like the friend you were describing. And I appreciate that banter. And we both get the same way. It's like, I don't think you're really listening to me. Mm. But at the same point, if you, if you have faith in what you have experienced, Mm. you don't, you don't need to tell anyone about it. That's your personal belief. Like if Mm. you have a prophetic dream and you just know, of course we want to share it with people, but why? I struggle so much with believing my own intuition. So because I have an inner insecurity with my intuition, when I feel so strongly that something is true and someone else isn't, then I, you know, you feel, I feel like hurt by that because I'm like, right now is the one time I know I can believe my intuition. Um, so have you struggled with believing your own spiritual life, your own intuition. Are you kidding? Like, yeah, I remember telling you a couple of days ago, I'm like, I'm having imposter syndrome just about being on this podcast, but mm. <clears throat> I get that with everything. Mm. Um, so yeah, I struggle with my intuition and the things that I'm good at um, and acknowledging them for what they are. When you're working in a ritual practice, how do you know what's going on is real. That like, like really like talking about intuition, how do you know 
what you're doing is real will have an effect. And how do you know the information you're getting is real? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like instead of just saying none of this, this is all BS. How do you believe in what you're doing? Well, I guess it's because I choose to. Okay. So you just let anything that comes to you say this is worthy of interpretation or listening to, et cetera? More or less. So a lot of people will bring ego into their practice and like, this is my divine gift. Like, this is my Mm. power. Like, I'm like, you know, and they capitalize on that. Um, For me, it's more of, I'm a vessel. Like, Mm. when I do tarot, it's not my, it's not me. It's something I'm just kind of, I'm a host, more or less. Yes. So even when I'm doing like home cleanses or cleaning my house, I'm like, I am just this, not not a puppet, not in a bad way. It's just, I kind of bog down my consciousness and mm. let my ego settle. And then I kind of listen to what, <clears throat> I listen to what comes up. Mm. That's just me though. Well, yeah. And that ties in with like being actors and artists. You're, if you're really doing it, you're just channeling stuff. Yeah. There, the Hollywood effect is so palpable and it's so fun. But I think when people, like when I sh- I've showed up to people's houses for like tarot readings and like tarot mm. parties, that's a thing. Mm. Um, and I think they expect me to bring out like my crystal ball and like just Stevie nicks the whole place up. And I'm just like, no, I'm going to do my reading on my flannel shirt because I forgot my cloth and, you know, I've got a bottle of whiskey in my bag. Like, mm. it's just, this is it. Like, it's not about mm. the show. It's like, do you want the answers or not? Mm. Um, so the showmanship and the performance, it's it's always going to be there. But really what it is, it's just what you're, it's about what you're doing, not the presentation of it. Um, here is a thought that I've been having. So you engage in like ritual, right? Yeah. And you're, you're, what are you doing when you're doing that? Are you inquiring information? Are you asking for something in life? Or, I mean, do you mind talking about that? No, not at all. I mean, every ritual will have its own different scenario, but for me, um, I guess what I work with most is um, it Pan mm. or the Horned God or whatever. There's so many names. Mm. Um, but mostly for me, it's communion. So it's not about asking. It's I generally don't ask for something. If I have in the past, like if... A, like when I first opened the shop, I was doing different rituals for money. Mm. Um, and, Did, there's, hmm? and they worked? Oh, 100%. So the, Absolutely. So I don't, I don't want to break you away from what you're starting to say right now. But so this is my, so I've really been in like a spiritual turmoil for a long ass mm-hmm. time. And so when I think about doing spell work and ritual and praying you know, sometimes I think with magic, it's like, and I'm sure you'll have something to, to, to help me with it, but it's like, at a basic level, it seems so egoic. It's like, I want something. 
Mm-hmm. So I've, you know, 10, well, five years ago, you know, I wanted this music video. I was reading about Chaos Magic. I did a sigil. I got a music video. Yeah. Um, it didn't, but it didn't create a relationship with that person, the musician. It didn't create like anything very human. It was like, I just got what I wanted. So my issue with the egoic nature of some aspects of ritual, prayer, et cetera, is um, who the fuck knows what they want because, or what's good for them. Cause it's like, I thought I was supposed to be a 25 year old winning Oscars for being a filmmaker. And I told you before we recorded, that's what I thought I'd be getting. I'd be the biggest director on earth. So until having a bit of a, ego crisis and, and finding a whole different lifestyle. I had no idea I'd be living in the mountains. I didn't know I'd be an illustrator. So it's like, how do I even know what it is I need or want? So why would I be partaking in rituals for what I want when, who, when I don't know what, what I want? There are, I feel like there are times in our life, everyone's life where we need something from something from a higher power. It's, it's kind of that feeling like when... We need it to rain on the crops. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also that I feel like that's part of our inner child coming on as well because you see it when somebody loses a parent. It's like, well, who do I go to now? We're, I'm the one. Like, I'm the matriarch or patriarch or whatever of the family now. Like, who am I supposed to turn to? And they always miss having that guidance. Someone to not necessarily do it for them, but to show them the way. But there isn't necessarily someone there tangible anymore i feel like there are times in our lives where we do want to do those rituals and sometimes they're necessary to acquire what we need like sometimes you just gotta pay rent girl like (laughs) or i need somewhere to live yeah i need um Mm -hmm. and but which is but but that is like as folk magic as it gets is like we or as ancestral magic as it gets right because it's oh, like definitely. we're it's, gonna paint animals on this cave because we need to eat yeah but there's also you know sometimes like you're just in a place where you're happy with everything you don't need anything so a lot of people are like oh i've fallen out of what i do it's like well you could honor what you're working with like you could commune with it like my life has kind of like i would say slowed down but maybe just a little but I no longer need or want from anything higher or from other people for that matter. Um, so I choose to commune when I'm not really in need of anything. And that could be like, it's just reverence. It's <sighs> lighting a candle on an altar. It's literally going out naked into the woods and dancing mm. for no reason. And it's, it's like a little party. <laughs> mm. Could you talk about Pan? Because you're saying your practice is in devotion to Pan. Yeah. So someone listening who might not know anything about, it's a Greek mythology? Uh, yeah, but I mean, the horned god yes. transcends There was a Celtic a, one. Culture. I mean, it goes mm-hmm. back to ancient Sumeria even. Mm. Um, a horned god has always existed. Even Artemis um, is one of the horned gods. Um and one of my very close friends and hairdresser, and he has artwork in the shop, um, when we met, we both discovered that we worship two of the same 
more or less deities. I I look at my deities as a, like a part of an archetype. Um, yes. But Pan was one of the ones where I've had that archetype literally manifest manifest himself in front of me. Um, so I work specifically with Pan now, and my devotion to Pan does not symbolize someone else's. And I'm using Pan. I'm using that name colloquially just so people kind of understand what it is I'm talking about. But I guess most of my practice and my devotion is giving up to the chaotic beast of nature. Like, and that could be physically, it could be emotionally, it could be monetarily. It's, it's kind of, all right, well, I'm, I'm born into this chaos. I either embrace it or I fight it. And it's, it's just, you're on a river, you pick up your oar and see what happens. Um, and then Why when, do you think you were drawn to Pan? So this is definitely like, is this not, definitely tell me if I'm off here, but is this not like a um, kind of a, you know, Bacchanalian, like Bacchus, reverie? Definitely. Nature, kind of a masculine nature god, maybe also because he's part animal. Pan is part goat, is he not? Yeah. And then isn't it also... Um, it's yeah, the Bacchanalian, the sexual nature, green manny kind of. Definitely. And at least in the valley, um, I don't have to give you the spiel about like the history of Appalachia, how old these mountains are. You know, we sh- you, you know all Go of that, it. right? No, no, tell it to someone okay. who's listening who doesn't know. So, Appalachian mountains, oldest mountains in the world. Um, when Pangea was Pangea, we shared the same mountain range with. Scotland, Northern Africa, and some places in between. Um, But in our region, I find that those weird symbols and deities and fairies um, are more rooted here that mirror like what they were doing in Scotland or what people have seen in Scotland. Yes. Um, So yeah, definitely like green man energy, like, it's it's more of a it's nature worship mm. more or less with a figurehead that we've appointed to it or that I've appointed to it in this case but I feel like that's what we're all doing it anyway. It blows me away that the Scotch Irish came to Appalachia because they brought their whiskey they brought scotch which became whiskey they brought their old music which became mm-hmm. all the you know all the folk music here and they were literally just returning to another part of the Appalachian mountain chain. And back to Pan, there are a lot of people who believe that, you know, it, the green man, Pan, whatever you call him, a lot of people believe that he's here and that he's never left. And that's why the Scotch-Irish and people who are following those more paganistic practices see the Fae and see these earthly gods out here because it's, it's the same you said you were you kind of like had a manifestation of Pan, mm-hmm. like you had a vision. Yeah. Wow. You saw this some kind not of not in the form that most people think. I know I'm sounding cryptic right now. Um, when I start asking people about spiritual stuff, it's obviously some of the stuff is incredibly personal. Yeah. So sometimes people, you know, often 
one might not want to say things publicly, but like I'll ask herbalists about their experience talking to an elderberry bush and about fairies around it. And then yeah. they'll be like, that's all I want to talk about that because they're very private experiences. And some of the stuff, you know, an outsider might think, well, that's, you know, you just might not want to, you don't need to share. Sharing your the sacred is a touchy subject. It is. And a lot of people, like a lot of skeptics will be like, well, if you can't provide the proof, then yeah. there's no pudding. But um, that's what spirituality is. It's the, it's, it's your personal faith with whatever it is you choose to believe in. Um, and my pan looks very different from one of my best friends who practices it in the traditional European sense of worshiping pan. Whereas I will just, yeah, it's more of a Bacchus energy, but I also just describe that name because it's tangible and that's what spoke to me at the time. I mean, I could call him Bob if I wanted to, but mm. it doesn't really matter the name a human ascribes to a God, does it? Mm. What? Do you, so Marie-Louise von Franz is, was a student of Jung and she writes some of the best stuff. And she was super into mythology and fairy tales, the interpretation of fairy tales. When you hear her on these, like she's dead, long dead. But when you see her videos on YouTube, I mean, it's like, this is an oracle. And um, when she talks about gods, You know, archetype is just like another word for all these things. Exactly. So when she says like the like anger is a god, all these things are a god. Um, you know, the Greeks were really good. More of these these cultures that could break up their gods, I think is much might be much healthier because you could differentiate we're gonna let Athena be war. You know, we're going to let, right? Isn't she the war goddess? Yeah. So we're going to let these different aspects of our emotional world and spiritual worlds kind of define, be a little bit more defined so you know where to put devotion to it. Does, I don't, I'm just like thinking out loud. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, far be it for me to even, I mean, I'm going to get struck down tonight for saying some of the things I'm going to say, but, um, dealing with, if we're talking about it on the archetypal sense, we do this like when we learn as kids too, when you take a an internal issue and you put it into something, like it could be like blocks or it's basically pinpoint, extrapolating all these different pieces of ourselves that in our mind are jumbled all around and shift. But of course, when you pull something out of you and turn it into its physical form, it's a little easier to deal with. It's kind of like when an artist has a vision, you have a vision in your mm -hmm. head and it could be like four in the morning. But you know, if you don't get up and put it down on paper now, it's going to be mixed up and gone and not as pure as what it could have been when you, if you had taken care of it. So that's, I feel- I've had that. See? So I was saying, I have a separate body of artwork that's totally different than what yeah. you know me for. They're paintings. A lot of them are nightmares, dreams, archetypal feelings, um, intense, ugly emotions, the shadow. But I've had in the middle of the night something kind of like come through me that needed to be painted. And it was like, that's not Philippe. That's not me. Yeah. I didn't come up with that idea. That was just some kind of dark I spirit. just got chills. <laughs> but I was telling you about being like that vessel for something else. I feel like that in between like sleep and wake state is when we become that kind of vessel for whatever is 
occupying us at the point. So you said it's no longer Philippe who's doing this. No way. You're just the you're just the thing that's putting it on paper now. That in a possessed state. Yeah. It's like, super that fast. to me, I call that speaking with God. Mm. And I use that term. I use all those terms very hollowly. Like we don't. That's just the word I use because it's easy to. It's tangible. That's it. It's turning something intangible, tangible. And that's part of creating, that's part of the archetypal situation with mm. gods or ourselves or tarot or Jungian theory. Mm. Um, so I definitely, when I go out hunting, so um, this is, will be like a long intro to asking a question or like asking for your feelings on something. Like, how did you choose Pan? Like, how do you know what God to pray to? That wasn't a very long intro to ask. Well, question. I have a long ass oh, okay. thing I could say before it. If I, but st- say what if you feel like you could already talk. talk. I mean, so part of, I mean, again, the answer is going to be always more mundane than what most people would expect. I've always been drawn to deer, bucks specifically. Mm. Um, my altar at home consists of probably 24 different horns and antlers, but all deer related. Um, So I've always been drawn to horned creatures specifically. Mm. Um, I basically had a dream and it's not, it wasn't really a choice. Like I didn't, it didn't say, Hey, I'm pan. Like, why don't you masturbate for me? Like it was, it presented itself. I did my research. I'm like, what did I just experience in this dream? And I w- after researching enough, I found the God or the archetype that fit the bill for me. Mm, amazing. So it was presented to you a little bit. Yeah. There, I can't remember his name, but there, the Celtic one is really interesting. The horned Celtic. Yeah, it starts with it, a C. It does. I know which one it starts with this. I know which one you're talking about. And even what I'm describing parallels the Celtic one. Mm. Okay. So here's the fuller, here's the long diatribe. I have to like lay out a whole diatribe to get into this. So I do wonder what God should, like who should I be praying to? And is it all equal? You know, do you just pray to, you know, every night when I go to sleep, I do like a prayer. Sure. I don't really feel a response, but I'm saying, hey, thank you for this amazing life I live, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you for all these things. You know, if someone's sick, maybe could you help them out? You know, but I don't really know who I'm praying to. And this has been such a struggle for me. You know, when I go out hunting, I have, I don't do it every single time I try to, but prayer has definitely helped in some of the tougher aspects. Killing is intense. So prayer has certainly helped. Um, So I do will say to like Artemis, you know, goddess of the hunt. Lately, because I'm, half my family's from Belgium, there's the patron saint of the hunt is St. Hubert. Okay. So I say like St. Hubert, you know, so, but I don't really know who I should be talking to. And here's a long diatribe. So my, the, my Jungian analyst, putting words in, I'm not putting what he, the way he thinks, his point of view is if you pray to ancient gods 
you'll get an ancient response. Okay. So I talked to a paranormal investigator in Chesapeake Bay. She's Christian. She talks about demons a lot. Mm -hmm. Demon is just an archetypal, is an archetype that we call a demon. So from my analyst's point of view, if you, if you treat them like a demon, they're going to respond like a demon. So if you treat them, so I guess I just saw the movie North, Northman. Did you see it? I haven't yet, okay. but it's we on our list. Yeah. So um, the director is the director of The Witch and the director of Lighthouse. He's very interested in history, archaeology, witchcraft, folklore, yeah. and being very accurate with those things. While watching the movie, I, it's supposedly the most accurate depiction of Viking life that you will see. There's a handful of rituals. I, watching the movie, felt like, you know, characters in the movie are saying incantations. And I was like, they're actually invoking it. And I was wondering, are they actually invoking these Nordic gods? And I felt like I was seeing what happens. You know, the characters in the movies are Vikings. They are praying to be slaughter wolves. They are praying to Odin. And like, this is what happens when you pray to Odin, which is like a goddamn massacre. It's a fucking bloodbath. So it's like, if you're, can you, can the ancient gods, can they, like, what do they have to teach us in the modern world? And like, is it safe to pray to the ancients in the modern world? Does that make any sense? Definitely. And are they going to tell you things that are like way too crazy and outdated? (laughs) For instance, I've been studying... You know, I'm so interested in Native Americans, mm-hmm. et cetera, but I'm not going to start doing Native American rituals. I'm not Native American. Right. So I'm interested in who was I a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago. You know, half my family's in Belgium. Um, my dad, who lives in England, his ancestry doing DNA is Northern France. So we're probably the Gauls that were inland Celts. Okay. The Gauls would um, smear sacred trees in blood and they would hang trees with the heads of their 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 slaves and then the their um the people their enemies they would hang in trees so it's you can't do that in 20 in 2022 so like if you pray to an ancient god is it's like are you going to get information that works in 2022 is it universal information i don't know does this have anything come up to you what saying all this stuff yeah and i mean we've had people come in asking for the craziest shit, like illegal shit. Like it's like, no, that's illegal. You can't have that. And it, sometimes it's just some, something as simple as a crow feather. It's like, no, it's like, well, I got it. So I'm like, well, they're lying to you because it's illegal and it's not a crow feather if they're selling it to you. But case in point, um, it depends on who you ask. There are still people who are doing, you know, practicing the old ways. Mm. Um Again, like it comes back to your personal relationship with whatever it is you happen to be worshiping. Mm. Like, yes, you can go to church, you can join a coven, you can join a circle, whatever Mm. you want to join for a community. Um, But your personal relationship with that deity or archetype or Mm. God, um, that's between you and it. Mm. So, you know, what, what I do, what what pain requires of me is not the same as what mm. my friend does or what is required for my, for my friend. We both get the same results that we would like or enter the frame of mind. Um, it's same thing, different language. There's mm. 
so many avenues to get to the same point. Um, but it's also, it's also human ego to think that we could even commune with them at any given point that we want to. Mm. Like, I go out to the woods all the time and I don't always see something. I don't always expect to. Mm. It's always a blessing for when something does happen. Um, and it's usually scary. Um, or at least humbling. But do you, can, Are you allowed to talk? Do you feel like you can say any examples? I like to, to really be able to see what you're seeing. You know what I mean? Like I like to have you speak it so that I can, like a movie, watch what you're talking about. So I understand sure. what you're saying. So I have um, two altars set up in the woods, um, one of which is a little closer to the house, and that's where we'll leave offerings. It's very casual. It's mostly like offerings for fairies and, you know, whatever. We just call it whatever's out there. Like we just leave our offerings there. They take it or they don't, but it's it's just there. A little further out into the woods so where it gets a little wilder for so many more reasons. And it's a small patch of woods, but doesn't negate its liminality. Um, That's where I will be called to um, strip down and dance, drink, um, make offerings, um, wander through the woods with no flashlight at midnight. And that's happened more than once. And um, there, there is a, there's a, what I saw has since spiraled into this new, I say new, cryptid, um, and that was not the intent. We'll talk about that later. I just found all this out last night, actually. Um, I had seen the thing that I worship, and in a private group, I was talking about my experience with it, and someone took that information and turned it into a story, which is, I don't care about that. It was a really fun story. Um, But since there has been a lot of talk about this specific cryptid in the Appalachia, and it's been very divisive for people from what I just read last night. The people who are from here like, oh, that's bullshit. It doesn't exist. We've never seen it. We've never heard of it. And then there's a new slew of people like, I've totally seen it. I know exactly what this is. Funny thing is, the description is not exactly what I saw. There's crucial elements of what I saw that were left out. I'm being cryptic for a reason because I don't want this credit. But what I can say, what I saw had three eyes. And it was presented to me and it wasn't scary. It was, it wasn't like being in the presence of a monster. It felt like being in the presence of a god, if that makes sense. I didn't go out this winter. Like usually in the winter, I kind of become a hermit in every sense of that word, um, even spiritually. I just kind of shut down and let myself be. Um, but when the snow finally melted, I went outside and there was a full set of buck antlers sitting on top of my altar. Now, that could have someone could have 
seen my altar out there and just made an addition to it that just happened to be relevant. Um, regardless of how it happened, it was it's it's curious, isn't it? So it's just been something that has been symbolic along my journey, and it keeps showing up, and it keeps getting wilder and weirder. When I say I was scared of my experience with what we are calling God or a God, um, it was not, again, it's not the fear of a monster. It's the humility of, like, I shouldn't be seeing this right now. When I'm bringing my one, one of my friends out there with me one night, he had been drinking and he's like, I want to go, I want to go see this thing. I want to go fight it. And I'm like, that's fun for you. I'm like, all right, let's go. Walked down the trail. It was a straight line, straight trail. Keep walking. And I'm like, we must have got, we must be towards the end. Cause I can see like the neighborhood lights off in the distance and we keep walking and we're literally brought back to my house walking in a straight line. So that's when I'm just like, okay, like this is for a reason. So we're just going to go inside now. We walked a straight I've line. I've read stories like that, that with, people have gone out into the woods and seen like a little village, tried to get to the little village and it's not there. Yeah. And things like that. Getting or turned around turned on around. a straight trail. Yeah. They can't find their way home going straight, like somewhere in the, in the, you know, bizarre little stories like that. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff. Wow. This is everything. So are you seeing it as much as you're seeing me and the wall and the walls of your apothecary? Yes. Wow. Wow. I don't want to talk too much about it because again, it turned into something that it wasn't. And I don't want to. What do you mean by that? I mean, it's become a cryptid. Because of expressing it publicly. Right. Well, it's that fish keeps getting bigger thing, right? So what I experienced was very real to me, but very simple. And how did it go away? Oh, it, I went away. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I noped my ass right back home. Okay, here, so, so fascinating what you said about not a monster, but a god. I can relate to that by, so I know that you're vegan, so hopefully this stuff won't be too uncomfortable. No, I, but so, you know, I've, I felt called to try trapping. Mm-hmm. So um, I tried trapping for a bobcat. There's plenty of them where I am. You can eat them. Um, one of the most amazing animals ever. Uh, they're, they're doing great on the landscape. There's not even a, um, there's not even a limit. So, so when you hunt and whatnot, yeah. oftentimes there's a limit. So it'll be like, you're only allowed to have this many. And that yeah. often has to do with how healthy this the population the is. Of that species, exactly. Yeah. There's not even a limit where I was doing this. So there's a ton of bobcats. I felt I got to try this. It took six days. I had multiple out. Um, when I approached the bobcat that was in my set um, with Vivian, Vivian is a, it always brings good luck on these things. Anytime she comes along to check the trap line, there's always the creature there. When I approached this bobcat, you know, I've in doing hunting and trapping, there have been things that have been intensely emotional and disturbing at just the, at killing has been extremely emotionally taxing at times. Um, in this instance, the bobcat 
was so intense and it was, um, it, the roar felt like a tiger. It was enormous. The roar and the growl and the intensity of like the rage it had towards me and me looking into its like golden eyes. Um, you know, and then there's the moment in which I put it down Mm -hmm. and sometimes that feels terrible. Sometimes it feels like, oh man, a bummer. Not in this instance. In this instance, it felt the only way I could describe it is what you just said. I was in the presence of a God that, that this, and I've had got other bobcats and it didn't feel anything like this. This one that I would felt that I was in the presence of what an indigenous nature religion would pray to not a bobcat, but in the God of bobcats, that this is a God feline and the intensity of this thing's, the intensity of it, that, that it, this was not just a normal bobcat. Right. And I don't really even get what any of that means, but I was in the presence of what you worship if you worship the bobcat spirit. Blew my goddamn mind. And obviously I want to try eating these things. Not, you know, you, for trappings, a lot of people will do it just for the furs. Yeah. I want to eat them as well. You know, because then it's your food. For beaver, yeah. for beaver, it's our food. It's one of the best things we eat. Raccoons, we've eaten lots yeah. of those. Squirrels. Exactly. Yeah. We don't trap squirrels. We, but um, Well, yeah, you don't need to. But um, so with the bobcat, we, you know, we've eaten a lot of these things. You know, often when you eat the wild game, you feel much wilder. Talking about pan and whatnot, you yeah. eat deer, you feel like way more invigorated. We didn't have a very good hunting season this year because we moved. And I'm like feeling eating beef and chicken. I feel like, God, I'm sick of this. <laughs> I want wildness and I feel like lethargic. But anyways, when we tried to eat the bobcat, we made three meals of it. And me and Vivian looked at each other and we said, this thing doesn't want to be eaten. And we were like, we got to stop eating this. Like a spiritual energy. So I think that's just so fascinating. We were saying about like contacting a God out there. What are the phase? You brought that up earlier. Oh, fairies. What is that? Like, what is it? I mean, I talk to herbalists and they say like fairies. And I'm like, okay, what? But can you describe that? Because like, I understand what a ghost is. Even if you don't believe in ghosts, I understand. Yeah, you get the concept of it. Even if you don't understand, if you don't believe in God, you understand what a God is. What is a fairy? Again, um, (laughs) you're you're talking to a folk herbalist and practitioner. Like, it depends on who you ask. Our relation, so my partner, Ben, Mm. very um, um, skeptical. Mm. And I I love him for that. But our house is old. Our house, we're the second or third generation to own it who have been like kind of like of the spiritual nature. And for us, it's not a matter of, it's not like, it's not Disney fairy. Right. Um, for some people it is, but it's sometimes it's just easier to put pictures of what we acknowledge, of what we know onto something. For me and for Ben and I, it's been um, green orbs of light, like wow. lime green traveling in through like two or three rooms in our upstairs. And I would always see them. And I was just like, I, when I see something, I'm like, cool, I'm going to let it be. Ben gets angry. <laughs> um, but fairies are... He sees mis- them too. He saw them one night, woke me up, and he's like, there were... I don't, I don't talk about half the things I see because it makes him upset because he doesn't. Well, he saw them one night, woke me up, and he was like, there are green orbs in our 
foyer. And I was like, you sure it's not just some like fireflies that got in? He's like, no, he's like, they're green. And I can't understand what is that. I'm like, yeah, this happened to me last year. Just go back to bed. Um, and you, you made a hand, you made a hand notion, like a size of a marble. Yeah. Um, and it was cool because I didn't tell him about what I was seeing and he saw them on his own. And then there was another night where he was out. Um, I don't know what he was doing, honestly, but he was going up to this, it was thicket and you could hear things crawling inside, like literally like scraping all around. And we did our research and, you know, it was like, oh, well, there's a certain type of larva that is very loud at night, but he walked away and it started kind of like, there was a glow to it. And I was like, okay, well, there's a new species of millipedes in our area. Like maybe they're finding their way down the mountain and they're phosphor or bioluminescent. It's hard to put into words what we felt, but it was very odd because we would like turn the light away and the rustling would start. Then you put the flashlight back on it, it would stop, but there was nothing Nothing there. No bioluminescence, no bugs crawling around, no little animal, nothing. Like, and it was, it was in a, it was taking, singing out loud, it sounds really stupid, but it was like part of Ben's journey into, oh, maybe there's little things out here that we don't quite grasp. He's like, he attributed it to fairies. So what he views as fairies is a little different than mine. And we leave out offerings and they're generally mischievous. They're, I've heard that. They're not good or bad. Some people like them in their house. I prefer to do things outside with them. Um, it depends on who you ask. Some people revere them and adore them and invite them in. And But out here, for the most part, it's like, mm-mm. Like, you go feed them outside. Like, take them outside. Honor them. Don't piss them off. And you'll be left alone. Do you find some of the old-time like country people around here believe in them? Oh, I would say 80% of my clients. And it doesn't matter if they're Christian, pagan, atheist, like everyone out here has had some experience with fairies. And and there's like a way, and you can feel that it's different than like a ghost experience. Oh, definitely. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's, ghost experiences feel paranormal. Mm. This feels earthly. Mm. It's kind of like when you accidentally catch like, I don't know, like a groundhog. Like it's very, again, it's just a mundane feeling. It doesn't right. feel, in, it doesn't feel intangible. It doesn't feel, you know, oh, like, oh, it's, I'm, we're haunted. We got to get rid of this. It's like, right. oh, that just happened. Cool. I guess. Right, 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 right. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, Vivian, my girlfriend, she definitely has brought brought up little fairy things, little things around the house. I haven't had a personal experience. So it's like, I'm just trying to, when I ask people like you who have a rich spiritual life, like I'm, it's because I want to know, I want to know what you're experiencing. So like, I've had ghost experiences, so I get that. Yeah. Then so it's like, I just want to know. I've had done this podcast with one of our friends who's an herbalist and many other things one of the most enchanted people I know. And while we're podcasting, she says, do you see the gnome right there? And I'm like, we're like closer than you and me. And I'm just like, no, I don't. But I'm so fascinated that you see a gnome. Like what, and like, what, what do you mean? Like, I want to see, I want to see 
through you. Yeah. Like I want to understand what it is you're perceiving. So I find that all just insanely fascinating. Um, you did tell one story, which is about this pseudo cryptid thing. Is there another story you'd want to tell? Um, yeah, I think there's a story I can tell that would probably, I think a lot of people will identify with it in their personal experiences. Um, again, this one has many names, um, out here, we call him the man in black. So you've heard of like the shadow man or the man in the hat. Um, some of the newer terminology is like slender man and all that. Um, but most of what we experience out here in the Valley is we just call him the man in black. The universalism in his description, it's always pale face, all black. Um, it's more of a silhouette is what most people describe. It's a, the silhouette, but the hat is the big thing. Um, it's so unfortunate because it's not unfortunate. It's very interesting because when, when you talk about it, it feels so cheapened because it's seen like across the world. But when you really get into like your local communities and find out like, oh, like this is happening a lot here. Um, you really can't ignore or deny its existence. It's kind of like um, the Mothman. And I think our regional man in black presents himself to the same to everyone in our, at least in the valley. There's been a lot of sightings with, we'll just call him the man in black because that's what we all call him out here. Um, but he's... He's been seen all over town, all through the valley, like in our little community. Every time he makes an appearance, someone will say something. And then, weirdly enough, at least a dozen people will come forward like, oh, yeah, I, he visited us last night, too. And a lot of, like, the big stories that reach, like, TikTok and all of the other these other things, it's like they're haunted by him. But out here, it's more of, like, he's just in passing, like... Our area is a very liminal space for so many reasons. Like we're on ley lines, we're at the entrance into the valley. Um, but here he just makes an appearance. Usually it's after something tumultuous. Like we just had um, really bad like hailstorm and tornado and he made his rounds and people were coming forward saying like, oh, he visited me last night or even like in broad daylight. Um, so, Another way I think people are calling him uh, the hat man, it's cloaked black silhouette with a wide-brimmed hat. Um, there's one key feature that I didn't even know about because I just tend to leave these things alone. It's like, okay, like that happened. We don't need to know. It's not my business. Um, it was in my in-between state of being awake and asleep. Um, and... In my mind's eye, it was the hat man or the man in black, but I was okay with seeing him. But then his eyes opened and they were glowing red. And I'm not, I'm like, ooh, glowing red eyes, how unique. But it hit me in such a way that I was like, well, I've had experiences with the man in black before, but never 
the red eye thing. So I did some research and apparently that is part of his nature is like the glowing red eyes. I'm like, interesting. So I asked a couple people, I'm like, hey, have you seen the man in black recently? And lo and behold, because of the big, big storm that we had, he was making his rounds. Um, some people will say he will come in a time of like need. Some people say he's a bad omen. Some people say he's there to protect you. Um, some people say he's there to protect children. In the valley and from the people I've spoken with in our circles, he just sort of makes his rounds. My sister, who um, she's in North Carolina, she com- she comes up to visit like maybe twice a year. The first time she came up to visit, no, she has no uh, knowledge of uh, cryptozoology or whatever spirituality up here. She does like barrel racing. She's she's an incredible woman. Spiritual, not so much. She was staying in her spare bedroom, and my closet is more or less. It was um, it's an old house, so it was the servants' quarters more or less. But from where her bedroom was, where she was staying, she could see into my closet. And she's pretty chill, pretty rational. But she woke up um, the next morning, and she was like, "I saw an old man in your closet last night." And I was like, what? And she goes, yeah. Um, He was just kind of standing there. I'm like, what'd you do? She's like, I just closed the curtains. I'm like, that's smart. Can you tell me what he looked like? And she said, pale, all black, and a wide brim hat. And I was like, you just described one of our, it's unfortunate that we have to label everything as a cryptid. But I was like, you just described something that a lot of people out here see. And she's like, does that happen a lot? I'm like, it does. And I'm like, I've never, I've never had anyone say that he was in that room, but I can call it my house all I want, but it's not my property and it's not my land. So they can, things can do as they please. There's a, most people when they see something in their house that they didn't invite in, the first thing they want to do is cleanse their home of it. Um, I ask people always, I'm like, do you feel threatened by it? Is it threatening you? Like, is it causing harm or fear? And most of the time, the answer is no. And it's like, well, maybe instead of removing it, like, why don't you commune with it? Or just let it be. Sometimes these things just go away in a couple days. And it it might come back next year. It might come back next month. But this is not our land. Your property is not your property. My property is not mine. Like, we're occupying space from not just indigenous tribes, but things that predate humanity altogether. And that's why I always turn a blind eye, or you might hear people out here saying like at night, close your curtains, or don't look behind you when you're walking through the woods, or this and that. Um, Some things you just don't need to know. Hmm. Who knows? Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Um, so obviously I think we could talk a little longer. I would be completely remiss to not ask you about like your herbalism, your relationship to plants, like, um, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't even really talk very much about how amazing your store is, which is filled with, um, so are animal products called curios? Is that, is there a term for animal products? bits and bobs used in, in ritual practice? 
I mean, usually you just call it what it is. Okay. Like, yeah, if you need a okay. chicken bone, it's a chicken bone. Okay. Um, curios, I we we sell a lot of curiosities, but all the curiosities we sell are usable in some form of folk magic. And I saw when you you said that they're um, on on your on your Instagram, like, well, one you get them a lot from Native American tribes. So I, in the past, yeah, um, but that was pre-COVID. I since moved to working with um, a regional taxidermist. And then if it looks dirty, that's something local. That's something someone either hunted or found on the road or found in the woods, and they're processing it themselves. So, so the cool. majority of the the bits and bobs, more or less, they're coming from either something I've harvested myself or from someone else bringing it in, and then we work out a trade system. Yeah, it, that's so cool because there's so many things that would go to waste that – might not be interesting to one community, they'd be interesting to another. Like like you said, hunters who are in it, you know, for the, there is a sacred art of hunting, but they might be in it just for food. So, but then there's all these things that, you know, could definitely be used by other people, like skulls, like, you know, little bones, et cetera, et cetera. Definitely. Um, so I did buy this one book that is quite, Wonderful. That's um, a book of hoodoo pl- root work and and curios. Mm-hmm. Um, how might some of these things be used? Again, it depends on who you ask. Like I saw We've, you've been dying coyote skulls with pokeberry. Yeah. I mean, that is cool. And it's beautiful. That's, a, that's actually a process. It's um, called uh, reddening of the bones. And you can use whatever is red it can use wine you can use blood you can use it's reddening um so is that is that um decorative or is it for some kind of practice it's for a practice but it can also just be i mean it depends some people just like doing it because it's fun um i work well i used to work a lot more with chaos magic and i know coyote was a huge form of my connection with chaos magic. So the reddening of coyote bones to me was a very spiritual one. Um, but I'm not going to discredit anyone if they just like the way it looks and wants to have bones, one. Paint bones. Yeah. yeah. Like a lot of the people who come in here that, well, obviously they're either coming in here for one or the other, but we get the people who need it for practice and we get the people who just want it cause it's what they want. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, well, talk about doing the pokeberry because yeah. I love dying. Like I love dying and, um, you know, I've made ink out of black walnuts. So you made a dye out of poke? Yeah. Um, I, my, I didn't, it wasn't, um, well, I guess it was traditional. I went the cheap route and mostly it was an experiment that went right, which is very, that doesn't happen often. Um, but it was a process of harvesting them um, macerating them and basically letting it ferment. Um, and to keep it all like from molding over, I would just pour a little bit of vodka in just a little bit at a time, but I let it ferment for about three months. Um, and then you throw whatever it is you're going to die. I just happen to use bone and leave it in for another three months. Make sure you're checking it. Cause obviously the vinegar is going to soften bone material mm. and it could break it down. Um, 
You left the bones in for three months. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, Now, poke is not a great permanent dye to use, regardless if you're using a mordant or not. It is water soluble. It fades really easily in the sun, but it's such a cheap, accessible, like it's it's a fun process. Um, And it's something that most people can just do on their own. Um, But obviously, like, don't wash it so much. Don't leave mm. it in the sun. Like, mm. yeah. So the sun, many of these natural dyes, isn't there a term like light fastness or something? I believe so. And it's like how does it age? The color can degrade. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's an experience. Sometimes it's not about the longevity of what it is you're doing. It's the process. It's the ritual. Um, what plants? What are what are some obviously? When you ask someone what their favorite of anything is, many favorites. But what is a plant that, you know, is one that really speaks to you, that you find interesting, the folklore, anything like that? You know, I've seen you've done a lot with mugwort, et cetera. Mugwort has been like my go-to because it's very accessible. It's easy to harvest, grow, vine. Um, What I've been doing now is with us having the woods and the property is I'm trying to naturalize um, more medicines in. So I just got in a handful of bloodroot, um, Solomon's seal, uh, mayapple, and we're doing transplantings right now trying to find the location at which they can like be more abundant. Um, but bloodroot, ironically, because you've been getting very much into these herbs as well, um, bloodroot has been speaking volumes to me and it's mm. also becoming endangered because of its harvesting. Oh, it's over harvesting and it's, it is suburban sprawl also. Mm. Um, so I feel like I don't, I'm sure there's a word for it. I'm just trying to bring back medicinal plants and have them grow on our property. One for the sake, so I can use them, but mm. also, in hopes that we can help preserve these natural medicines that are being like slowly over harvested and wiped out because mm-hmm. people want to move here now. Yeah, that's been one of the um, some of the nonprofits that have hired me. They're definitely into the preservation or conservation of Appalachian yeah. medicinal plants. But yeah, I was just fascinated by with bloodroot because um, <clears throat> I was doing an illustration about it because I had just been reading about um, one of the earliest. Um, observations from an explorer in the 1500s in Carolinas, North Carolina, I guess, was observing that the tribes there in the lowlands before the Appalachian Mountains would go to the Appalachian Mountains to harvest bloodroot, which they would use in their war paints that they'd put on their face. Um, What's curious to me is that there's, I don't know what the compound is called, but bloodroot is used for like burning off warts and stuff. So I don't yeah. know how they created it so that it was okay to wear on your face without it deteriorating your skin. It would be mixed in animal fats, like bear fat. Definitely. So we actually, um, I have a salve that I'm making that is, um, it's basically bloodroot and sarsaparilla. Bloodroot is one of the key components in traditional have you heard of uh, like black salve? Tell me about it. It's, it's drawing. Have you heard of drawing salve? Tell me about it. Okay. So it's used to draw out infections. So it's used to draw out like um, cancers and moles, warts, stuff like that. But it's highly carcinogenic. Hmm. Um, just like everything, 
it's best used in moderation. So the topical application, like now I try to also work with like modern science. Like I'm not going to tell people like, oh yeah, drink like sassafras root tea every day for three years. Like probably not fantastic, but so is smoking. So just, you know, within reason. Um, But topically it's totally fine. It does have the potential to be carcinogenic and it will eat at your skin eventually. Um, But I mean, in small doses, used within reason mm. and mixed into other things. Absolutely. Like it's fine. It's the prolonged and concentrated application of most herbs mm. that really buck with people. Mm. So tell, say a little more about the mugwort. Oh, mug, mugwort's one of my favorites. Um, cause it's so abundant out here. It's, um, some people will say it's a mild hallucinogen, which it, it's mildly psychotropic for sure. Um, we use it in tea. We What's use the difference there? Between psychotropic and hallucinogenic. Mm-hmm. Psychotropic is any mind-altering substance, really. Um, mm. But when I say mild psychotropic, it's... I describe it as like being... I guess it's, that's your tolerance is different. But for me, it's like somewhere between a couple hits off a joint and having a glass of wine, like at the same time, it just elevates you. Um, you feel floaty, but not disconnected. Um, if you do it in the middle of the day, you know, you'll walk around for an hour and just feeling pretty good about everything. If you, if you smoke it and drink it as a very strong tea before you go to bed, um, it's fantastic for dream work. I've heard that. And have you had personal experience with it making your dreams more vivid or? Absolutely. Mm. To the point where we created our own smoke blend from it. Uh, we have a pillow mist with the, uh, its oils in it. Mm. Um, and in folk magic, it's sometimes, you know, it's like, it's where just put a sprig of lavender under your pillow for mm. good dreams and sleep. It's like, well, yeah, the medicine is there. It's, it's there, but we also practice modern medicine. So why not make it more potent and really get to the point of the herb? Like we can address the animism of everything that everything has a soul and everything Mm. has a purpose and just being in its proximity comes to life more or less. Mm. Um, But from a medicinal standpoint, it is potent and the stronger you make it, the more results you get. And most of our clients who do try it really enjoy it. I think I did back in the day, but I'll give it another shot. I'll give Mugwort another shot. You would see it growing up out of the cracks in the street in New York City. Oh, it's very hardy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is there another plant that you've been using? I saw you just did a post about um, cedar oil, cedar soap, pine soap. Pine tar soap. Yeah, what yeah. is that all about? Um, well, pine tar, I, it's basically been used on every continent, every region that has pine. Um Usually it's pine pitch. Pine tar is just pine pitch that has all of its moisture extracted. So it's very, very thick and obviously black. Um, mm, cool. But I was drawn to it several years ago when I first got into soap making, which I no longer do, except for that one. Um, but I was reading more up on it. And traditionally it was used to heal cracked hooves and you know, farm animals, like livestock. Um, it created a sealant, it filled in the crack, and it's antiseptic, antibacterial, antifungal. 
um, just all around like kind of solid to work with. Of course, there's a carcinogenic, carcinogenic, yeah, whatever, carcinogenic nature about it. So obviously everything should be used within reason. Um, but I started putting it into a shave soap that I was making and it kind of launched into its own soap. And I, I was like, this is really good for acne. This is good for a variety of skin conditions. I like how it smells. It's very, as an acrid smell, um, very earthy, acrid, and just a hint of pine. But I tend to be drawn to making things that aren't aesthetically pretty. Hmm. Um, some of the most, some of the best medicines, they, they don't taste good. All of our herbal teas here, not all of them, but a good majority of them, they're not meant to taste good. It's medicine, baby. Mm. Like It's going to be bitter. Mm. It's the same with where I've gone into like topical applications. Like you don't need all the scents. You don't need it to smell like, I don't know. You don't need it to smell like an Aveda salon. Like mm. you need the medicine that's in it. So mm. let's forego all the like bells and whistles and just get straight down to the core of what medicine is. And that's, I mean, we're talking about pine tar soap and that's one of like my core medicines that are topical at least. Are you making these products here at your home? Yeah. So everything on, y'all can't see this, but everything on the table beside me, our labels actually show up in two days. So I'm really excited. But um, yeah, most everything we're harvesting ourselves, making ourselves. The only exception to that rule is like, I don't have time to make soap anymore. So I'm getting a soap maker who lives five minutes down the road. I gave him exactly what I wanted and he experimented with it tried it out. I was like, this is exactly the way I used to make it. Let's do this one. Oh, so you gave the recipe? I didn't give, I gave him what I put into it okay. and he figured out what works for him. Very cool. That's everything else I'm making. But very, very the, cool. The, yeah. The cold process bar soap. I just, I'm being pulled in every other direction, but making soaps. So. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much one can do with yeah. the time, time, but so you're really, one of your passions is making these, these salves or these topical. Yeah. Salves, powders, mm. um, different sprays. And then, um, even like we have fire cider, uh, I do elderberry syrup, but I only use what I grow. So that's more of a seasonal thing now. Mm. Um, so trying to work with what's in season, what I'm growing. And then in late summer is when I'll, we work with a lot of other farmers, Mm. um, or just people who are growing gardeners too. They'll bring in what they've grown. So long as it's pesticide free, we process it, dry it, bag it. So late summer, early fall is the best time to get locally grown herbs from the area um, that that are ready to use. That is awesome. Very, very, very cool. Um, let's see, I guess we can kind of start closing it up. I thought it'd be cool. I know I saw, you don't seem, it seems to be in your older work is, um, like crystals. And it's interesting what you, I saw you wrote a little bit about how crystals are a touchy subject because a lot of this is like mined by, you know, in, in countries where people are getting effed over. Yeah. I don't know anything about this. Could you Uh, say, I understand, but could you say a little about it? Sure. Um, and what I'm about to say, there's I, no judgment. Like this is a judgment-free zone, but this is <laughs> my choice as a business owner and as a practitioner. Um, 
I just talked to my assistant a couple days ago and we both agree that we're going to start phasing out our crystal selection. We'll still have some jewelry and stuff and, you know, selenite's very abundant on every continent. That's easy to come by. Um, we can get local crystals in, but for the good majority of crystal work, um, it's not an Appalachian specific practice. And, you know, I guess half the stuff in here isn't either. Um, but a lot of crystals, it doesn't, there's no such thing as an ethically sourced crystal. Hmm. If you were to ask me, hmm. um, and this is going to piss, this is, this will get me canceled. Really? Um, but if you really think about it, even if it is a byproduct of mining, even if it, they don't source child or slave labor or indentured servitude, um, you also need to think about indigenous displacement of people. Mm -hmm. um, so especially out here, like our hills are teeming with courts. Mm -hmm. There are some very uh, spiritual numinous places out here mm. where, um, you know, our indigenous tribes held them sacred. And some of that is the crystal in the land. Mm. So it is my personal belief and my practice that if it's in the ground, it's meant to stay there. Mm. Um, it, it's what makes the world magical. Mm. I don't, believe personally by digging it up or having someone else dig it up more importantly polishing it off shipping it overseas it, the possession of an object does not make life more magical hmm. like it's the world that we live in it's humans always want to obtain and to um, possess something yes um, we want a piece of something that we can take with us and hold forever. Yes. And that's with other people, but it's also with nature. It's like when, if everyone were to take a stone out of a river because they wanted a keepsake, that there would be no stones left in the river. And mm -hmm. I feel the same way with crystals. Like for every piece that is mined and dug out, that's it's no longer part of the earth anymore until someone puts it back in there. But... I feel I could go on this subject. So for a this while, is really like if you're interested in sustainability, if you're interested in ethical yeah. crystals, is really like um, it's an economy it's a that's non, really it's a, it's a non-renewable resource, right? Right. And you know, you could say the same thing for some of the like skulls and bones I have in here. Like it's like oh well, you you don't like rocks, but you'll you know you'll kill an animal or chop a plant down, but that's... Those grow again. They do, Over but that's also, that's my journey and that's my choice. And what, it, but so what is the, what is the appeal about crystals? Like, do you feel that they have some kind of magic thing going on in them? I believe, I mean, really, I think quartz is one of the most magical crystals in the world. Um, so many uses, like it's in your computer right now. I'm not mm. saying your computer is full of magic because I've seen that. Um, but crystals are used to store energy scientifically. Mm. They're also mm. used to transmute energy and to focalize energy. Um, but usually it's quartz when we're talking about like the magical gems and stones, like even in the descriptions, like 
they, oh, well, quartz is good for everything. You can program it to whatever you want it to be. And I'm like, absolutely. So why not, why not just use quartz for everything? Um, I used to collect crystals because I just found them. They're, they are beautiful. For sure. Half of it is just having this pretty shiny Very thing. Beautiful. Like, uh, um, so I think a lot of, I think the immersion of these like very beautiful like minerals and even the half the shit I sell in here, part of the immersion is the magic. Hmm. Um, that was a very, the way I described do I believe in crystal magic. That was a very politician-y way for me to answer, but that's my answer because hmm. I don't want to discredit someone's connection hmm. and I don't want to say, oh, it's all bullshit just because I don't hmm. grasp onto it. Like. What works for me does not work for everyone, and what works for someone might not work for me. So I've got this piece of black obsidian in my pocket. Cool. I bought this like 12 years ago in New York City at some crystal shop. And when we moved, it somehow migrated to my car. I don't remember putting it in the car when we moved, but it's just been laying around. I don't think about it or anything. And it, for the past few days, it's been glimmering at me. And I'm, so I looked at it, and then I thought today, I thought, oh, well. So I put it in my pocket. I don't really know anything about it. I do remember back in New York going to a gem shop, like on the 30th floor of some building, and like putting my hand on a huge ball of black obsidian. Yeah. And I could actually feel something. Oh, 100%. Like pulsing through my hand. Like, and I was like, wow, maybe this is what people are attracted to. Obsidian is very close to, it's a type of quartz. Um, Technically, it's a type of, it's a glass or Mm. it's, you know, I don't want to, uh, it's glassine in nature. Like, so I don't want to make any statements that could be misconstrued as fact. Hmm. But I know it's a type of quartz. It's very similar to quartz. And obsidian and quartz are two of my favorite stones. Hmm. I did remember, I recalled this morning as I put it in my pocket that I had listened to a history podcast and they were exploring um, the Mayans and the Mayans would make knives, sacrificial knives, sacred sacrificial knives out of black obsidian that they would cut the hearts out of their victims yes. <laughs> or their sacrifice victims. You can still purchase <laughs> obsidian knives, but usually they're used for like spiritual cutting ceremonies, which is like, ah. you know, it's a psychic cutting. Right, I'm sure, right. I'm sure there are still like people who will draw blood with it and everything. Sure. And that's their, that is their journey. But most people will use an obsidian mm. blade mm. to make like psychic cuts Psychic cuts on themselves? No. Um, Think of like invisible cords or... Interesting. Sometimes even a physical cord that's more of a indicative of a relationship. Oh, so if you feel like you're tied up in a relationship or something, like a ritual to sever that? Yeah. Wow. There's tons of ways you can go about it, but cord cutting is a pretty accessible one that most people can do for... You don't even... You know, most people don't have to buy anything for that. If you got two candles and some string, you're good. Okay, maybe as we're about to finish, unless there's something else you want to talk about, that, you know, I listened to a little podcast you did about smudging. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've worked so much illustration work for people interested in the conservation of plants, mm-hmm. you know, the whole sage thing, you know, a lot of the nonprofits I've worked for want people to stop using up all this sage because, you know, it's over harvested, et cetera. Um, I heard you talk about it and you talk about how you sell um, a bundle that is with locally sourced plants. Yeah. Am I right? You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, 
So I remember doing that podcast too, um, and a, it's gotten a lot better. So factually, most of the sage you're getting, white sage in particular, is what we're talking about. Mm. Um, you're getting it from a farmed source. Mm. So the ethical ramifications are not surrounded around bioavailability. Mm. It's that it's not your culture. Mm. Like we have tribes out here who, you know, we don't grow white sage out here. What we have is we have pine, we have cedar, we have mugwort, we have roof. There's so many other things that can be used. Um, but also that's indigenous practice. So why would someone on the East Coast smoke cleanse their home with something that a tribe on the West Coast would use. Mm. There's no connection unless you're claiming that ancestry. Mm. That's your journey. Do your thing, baby. Mm. But out here, people who want to smoke cleanse, um, you know, the colloquial term is smudging. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just call it smoke cleansing because every, every person on every continent, every tribe on any continent has done smoke cleansing in their own form. Sometimes it's incense. Sometimes it's a bundle of herbs. Um, but you're, what most people are after is the ritual of a smoke cleanse. So out here, we try to just wild harvest what we have. A lot of time it's pine, mugwort's in season, so those are coming back soon. Um, most, of the, most of what you're getting in any store, mine included, if, it's, if it doesn't say where it's from, like it's probably farmed. You can, you burn what you want. Um, again, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to provide outlets for people to experience their own spirituality. What is a, so what, so you're using, so for someone who's listening, who's never really done this, you're using the smoke to cleanse. Yeah. Why is smoke is, do you have any feelings why that works? I can, what is it about the smoke? Uh, you mean just aside from the ritual? I mean, smoke in of itself is, oh, it just looks magical. It, it definitely you, wanna, you magical. want to play with it. Um, there's also a form of, you, people will do smoke divination. That's mm. a thing as well. Um, there's also something just purely like visceral and archaic, like mm. the smell, the feeling of fire. Mm. Like, I mean, we all, you know, fire is kind of like one of those, like, oh, I want to play with it. Mm. Um, but if you want to get it, get into it from a scientific level, um, smoke breaks apart ions in the air and creates negative ions. It's the same feeling you get when you walk through the woods or walk down the beach where you feel like the air is cleaner or lighter or you can breathe. There's just something different. And what people describe are describing in those times are it's the concentration of negative ions in the air is more prevalent. Now, by burning plant matter, what you're doing is you're releasing those negative ions into your at, into your room or home or whatever. Um, so That's on a incredible. scientific level, it even just feels better. I had no idea about yeah. that. That is so incredible. Wow. Huh. Very interesting. My girlfriend definitely does, you know, will do that quite often, smudging. Um, let's see. Any final thing you want to say? Um... I can't think of anything. I mean, I saw on one of your posts that you have done some paranormal, um, you know, in some house that you were helping. Yeah. Um, I really, I don't divulge too much on like private clients' homes. So. Oh, you were hired to come do that? Yeah. Wow. 
So um, to, to cleanse the house mm-hmm. with tra- stuck spirits? Yeah, I've done about three big ones and I, I don't know how many small cleanses I've done, but three where we were actively removing something. Um, but yeah, those are, that's, those are private and clients' homes and part of my contract is we just don't, I don't discuss it because it's nobody's business but theirs. But I can't say that all they are they're all happy. <laughs> so you're pushing something out, you're getting it out. Yeah. And you can't talk. Can you can you say anything about the process of getting it out? I guess I can. <laughs> it all varies like, depending. You, are these like a goat? Like is this like um someone has died, their spirit, whatever that is, staying there? And won't leave? Is that what this is? Or is this like when I did the interview with the paranormal investigator, they talked she talked about demons, which seems like something very different. Sure. It's not someone's spirit that's stuck. Like, are you getting like a black, dark, malevolent energy out of someone's house? Are these different things? I've experienced that. I've experienced what some would call ghosts, just um, especially in Williamsburg, mm. um, all the battlefields. Two of them were out there. Um, dealing with something a little that predated their family and their mm. home. Um, I've dealt with those black energies. And that's, you feel that that's something separate? That's something separate. Mm. Um, and then something a little bit more chaotic. Mm. Nothing, it's nothing like what you see in Hollywood. Mm. Like, mm. Um, and it's not something I offer right off the bat. Like, I will walk people through the process of doing it themselves, and I am always a last resort. So I'll help people find what they need, and usually it gets the job done. Things quiet down, but only three times have I experienced something where I had to be there. Hmm. Interesting. I guess you already said it before, but when you saw that God thing in your backyard, you felt scared. Are you often scared by the spiritual? No. No. No, I mean, I, I'll take walks in the woods, whether it's behind my house or when we go camping. Like, I like wandering around in the dark and experiencing mm. what I'm experiencing, what I'm, ex- what I'm going to experience. Because usually at the end of the day, humans are the most formidable thing in the woods that you'll encounter. Oh, definitely. So that's what I'm when I'm camping by myself. I'm most nervous about encountering some weird person. Yeah. Or, I mean, yourself. <laughs> or myself? Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah, sometimes I get- you're the most dangerous person. Sometimes there's just no one else. It's just you, but we are the trespassers. So. Okay. All right. Really, in closing, I think this would make sense. Um, I feel it has to do with the, the mission of your store and mm-hmm. the meaning you feel in your own life. I've read that you um, refer to yourself as this person on like the fairy between two realms, the right. fairy, like on the a ferryman. Fairy. Yeah, that not, could be not misconstrued. A <laughs> not, not a fa- not a fairy is in the folkloric creature. I mean, like a boat. Like you feel. Please elaborate. Um, yeah, I. I like to hold space for people, um, and that means like bringing people from one shore to the other. Um, it's. It's lonely, like, and I, I don't always know what I'm doing, um, but I just like to help people. Some people, you know, some people call it shamanism. Some people call it, uh, 
you know, witch doctor, there's so many names, healers. Um, but for me, I feel like at the core of my being right down to who I identify as a person, um, I've always just been stuck in between in that gray zone. Um, I just learned how to harness it and become a vessel to help people get from one side to the other, whether it's through spirituality or, you know, we have a food bank in the back. Um, in any, in any case, it's really the core of what I'm doing is, um, holding space for a community Hmm. and supporting one another, regardless of what path we're on at any given point. Um, and I feel like the community that I built has exceeded anything I could do myself. So, yeah, I think I've exceeded my boundaries. Now there's a lot of ferrymen out there in our commu- in our group that are doing exactly what I do. Do you know the mythological character, Charon? No. I think that's how you pronounce it. C-H-E-R-O-N. Mm-hmm. They are the ferryman between the world of the living and the world of the dead on the river Styx. So which is the- <gasps> Yeah, okay. And they will, when someone passes, they will take the body to the other side and they're like eternally going back and forth on this ferry. And so in, I believe in Greek times, well, in the world of Greek mythology, um, when someone would die, you would place coins over their eyes. To pay the ferryman. To pay the ferryman is Charon. There's there's some stories in uh, Kabbalah that mirror that. That's another story for another time. That's a whole different, (laughs) yeah. Well, hey, this has been a pleasure. Your shop is awesome. Would you like to um, say a few words about I, I know you do a lot of online sales. Your Instagram is awesome. Your aesthetic is on point. You want to say a little bit about um, you know following the store, ordering yeah. from the shop, et cetera? Um, so we're kind of in, in, like in a growing phase right now, which is a good thing. So we most of our sales right now are happening in-store, um, but I just moved our website over to a different platform. It's just a matter of getting everything listed. Um, so if you check us out on Instagram, you'll see like more of what I do behind the scenes. I don't like to monetize myself on Instagram like I used to. Um, our Facebook is where I'll usually post new products and stuff. And then the website is where you can order in the future. We're still working on it. Um, but every month we have new things. We work with local artists, um, and those are always changing as well based on availability. We're getting back into our events. Um, we do a lot of community work, a lot of volunteer work. Um, classes are going to be coming back. 